Hi everyone! Just a heads up that today's episode on The Scottsboro Boys deals with themes of anti-black racism and police brutality, as well as discussions of sexual assault. For more information on how you can support local and national organizations dedicated to fighting anti-black racism, please visit blacklivesmatter.ca. You can also follow Justice for Black Lives Winnipeg on Instagram for a local connection. That's Justice, the number four, Black Lives Winnipeg on Instagram. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast that the 2011 Tony Awards Selection Committee definitely doesn't want you to hear. It's Monkeys and Playbills! <laughs> I'm Paul DeGurse. I'm Jillian Willems, and we have a very special guest today. This man is one of my favorite people. He's an actor, he's a composer, he's a member of the original Canadian cast of Hades Town. He writes awesome music. We met in Edmonton, living in a hotel hallway together for three months. He's just great. It's Hal Rogers. Yay! Aw, thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's so good to have you. What are we talking about today, y'all? I was told we were talking about Scottsboro Boys. I bet I hope that's correct. That's a good idea. Let's do that. <laughs> I can't wait. So, Paul, what do we do here at Monkeys and Playbills? Here at Monkeys and Playbills, we talk about Broadway shows that had runs of 100 performances or fewer on Broadway. And what the heck happened? <laughs> and like we just mentioned today, we're talking about 2011's The Scottsboro Boys which I think is probably the most controversial show we've ever tackled. I think so. There's a lot to get into in this show. I'd say it's the show with a really incredible um, creative lineage. Mm -hmm. It's by um, legendary musical theater composers, Kander and Ebb. It's the last show they ever wrote together. And it's also, um, like Parade, which we covered a few weeks ago, it is a musical not about a happy topic, but about a horrific violation of human rights in American history. Absolutely. Previews began at the Lyceum Theater on October 7th, 2010. It opened on October 31st, 2010, and closed on December 12th, 2010, after 29 previews and only 49 performances. That seems short for Candor and Ebb's last show. Mm-hmm. If you look at their history as well, they had these both these major successes and a few shows that really didn't um didn't have staying power at all. Like a few shows that we'll cover later on in this podcast at some point. Something like um Yeah, The Rink. Yeah, The Rink. Steel Pier, I think. Steel was Pier, another... that's the one I was thinking of. Yeah, that's yeah. one that I've never even heard of. I feel like we should have you back to do the Steel Pier episode. Absolutely. <laughs> in like a couple months. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be I'll be interested to examine those shows as well. Cause this show doesn't seem like an under one hundred. That's no. correct. Throughout this podcast, we've noticed some, there's lots of lots of shows that are great. Very few shows we can't find some redeeming quality in. Mm -hmm. But this show has, it's not without its controversy and without its problems. Mm -hmm. But to go under 100 on a show like this is a very bizarre thing. So should we get into it? Oh, I would love to. So I think we should start with the synopsis game. Hal, this is a very fun game. Fun for me, less fun for Paul, because he's not a, a super focused synopsizer. Just not super focused in general, no. <laughs> I think together, the two of you should try to synopsize 
this musical for me. Okay. Um... <laughs> this isn't going to be fun. Once again, this is not a, not a happy plot. No, but we do need to track through this play. To give everyone a, a clear picture of why this is both fascinating and really controversial. All right, so where do we start? We start with, we start with the full cast, right, Hal? Yes. They all come on stage and they're sitting in a semicircle on stage. And totally. they start telling us the story of the Scottsboro Boys. And they're doing it in this vaudevillian musical style that's really, it's calling back to, um, to minstrel shows. Yes. Which is a super racist and controversial part of the early 20th century performing arts history. It's like this troupe of, of players who are telling us the story. Like, it's, it's, important, it's important to know that it's, it's a play within a play. That's yes. exactly what it is. Yeah, totally. And so they're, they're saying, what are we going to tell today? What story are we going to tell? There's these two characters, Mr. Mr. Bones and Mr. Tambo. And they're like, what story are we going to tell? We're going to tell the story of the Scottsboro Boys. They also specify that they're going to do it different this time. And they're going to tell the truth. That's right. Yep. That's very important they say that. And so this is already, this is cloaked in this, this layer of irony because they are calling back to this really racist part of Broadway history. Um, at least if you're me, you're sitting in your chair a little uncomfortable, like, what on earth? Where are we going with this? So they, um, they dive in. They tell the story of these, this group of young men who, they were just riding a train. They just, they'd stowed, stowed away on a train, right? Just hitched on a train. Yeah. Um, and we meet all the characters a little bit, and we especially meet Haywood Patterson, who's kind of our main-ish character. It's really an ensemble piece. Yeah. But he sings about how excited he is to be on this trip, to be riding this train, how he feels free. Um, it's just an awesome song. It's this song called Commencement in Chattanooga that's just boom. It's a bop. Great song. It's so <laughs> it's good. So <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> but then the train stops before they're um, before they've reached their destination. While they're stopped, they end up kind of in proximity to two um to two women. To two white women. Who are ostensibly prostitutes. Mm-hmm. Correct. And the police see the women and the women to be like escape getting arrested or getting in legal trouble for being prostitutes, mm-hmm. claim that they were sexually assaulted by these um, these men on the train. Right. And I, in my research, there's this amazing video from Emory University where they talk about the, the true story of the Scottsboro Boys. And in that video, the professor was talking about how these white sex workers made this claim because... I guess the sex worker part isn't wasn't the illegal part. The illegal part was that they had crossed state lines to work. Oh, I so didn't they know that. they wanted to evade the police and to distract them of that fact, which is why they made the claims that they did. And then just because because the men were there, the boys, the boys were yes, there. Yes, boys. Totally. Yeah, they were just they claimed that these boys had raped them and so you know it was for the cops like oh don't look at us we weren't doing anything illegal they raped us yes totally and taking advantage of the fact that this is the south this is still a um really racially charged situation we can get out of this by throwing uh, these boys under the bus um so then they do they're they're arrested they go on trial the trial does not go very well at all where their lawyer is just a disaster and once again, all these characters are being played by by the Scottsboro Boys. Or um, almost all of them. Sorry, not all of them. Almost all of them. Yeah. I think, and we'll talk about it a little later, I think it's very significant which characters end up being played by the Scottsboro Boys, by this ensemble of performers, and which ones get played by the, um, he's called the intro, intro-locutor? Intro-locutor? It, yeah, the in, intro-locutor. I don't know. I don't, yeah, there the we go. I don't know how to say it. <laughs> interlocutor. 
Yeah. The one white man in yeah. the show mm-hmm. who's kind of the quote unquote MC or um, mm-hmm. master of ceremonies of the Scottsboro boys in the show. So the trial does not go very well and they're sentenced to death. So they end up in the um, in a jail cell. They chat for a little while. We get some really meaningful, really fascinating character development, a really beautiful song and some really scary, um, some really scary songs where it's like, oh, they're all going to be killed by the electric chair. And then already at just as they're about to be killed, they get a retrial. Yeah, they get a retrial. Something something happens. Uh, well, I think that it's because their their trial has been in the news. Right. Yes, a, yeah, yeah. a Jewish lawyer comes down from New York and like demanding that they have a fair trial because mm-hmm. they, they, they were not given a fair trial. Right. Totally. So there's all sorts of stuff there. It's worth mentioning that the lawyer is Jewish because there's some Southern anti-Semitic stuff that comes into play as well. Stuff that we'd already kind of seen in Parade. There's like a full musical number in the courtroom during the second trial. The Scottsboro Boys trials. I looked this up. You think they, you see this and you're like, man, this seems like it took place, it must have taken place around the same time as the Leo Frank trials. Another really important human rights case. 20 years after. Like exactly 20 years, no? Yeah. Or like 18 years or something. Wow. 20 years after this brutal anti-Semitic case, we're having this brutal um, anti-African-American case. So they've, they've had a retrial with a better lawyer. Then they're back in the cell. We keep on coming back to this cell where we get to check in with the Scottsboro boys talking with each other. One of them tries to escape. Haywood tries to get out. Yes. And that doesn't go, um, that doesn't go very well. Important to know, he's trying to escape because of his mom. His mom is sick and he's trying to like send her letters and trying to be like, I want to get home before my mom dies. Haywood learns to write. Yes. Yes. Yes, Yes, that's right. Oh, it's incredible. Because there's one one of the, one of the other boys teaches him how to write. Yeah. They keep on going to trial. And they keep on being found guilty. Eventually, the lawyer is able to get some of them off. Yes. I think only four of them, but then five of them are still in jail. At some point, one of the one of the young women recants yeah. the testimony. But the um, the persecution is like, oh, I don't know about that. So it doesn't even really count for anything. Yeah. This is such a bizarre racist trial that even if one of the prosecutor's key witnesses is recanting her testimony, that it doesn't really do anything. But yeah, they get a few of them off. Yeah, there's like a line where where she says, um, you didn't you believed me when I was lying, like why don't you believe me when I'm telling the truth or something? Totally. It's pretty it's a pretty amazing moment in the show. Yeah. No one's getting treated well in this. We've got all these characters and none of them are being treated with much respect. It's really not it's no good. One of the boys uh gets shot in the head, doesn't die, but has brain damage. Right. That's really sad. That's oh. really no good. Jeez. And then so we've got a few of the Scottsboro boys are left in prison. Finally, this is where we kind of, they focus in on Haywood a little bit more, mm-hmm. um, which is really valuable when you've got a cast this big of um, protagonists. It's kind of nice that they're able to focus in on Haywood. And they're like, hey, Haywood, finally, it's been whatever, 30 years. We think we can get you off. You just have to plead guilty. If you plead guilty, you go free. He's not interested in that. Mm-hmm. It's like, I didn't do it. I'm not going to say that I did it. And then he just gets sent back to prison and eventually dies in prison. Yeah. And that's kind of the end. And then, because it's a play within a play, yes. yes, the actual play that the audience is watching ends kind of like when movies end and you kind of hear how they lived out the rest of their lives. And so we have this song where the entire cast, minus Haywood, comes out in full blackface. Full blackface, like white lips, like the very cartoon... 
Mm -hmm. um, caricature. Like really shocking to see. Yeah. They come and do this number that is, it's a great number. And you're just like, I, how am I enjoying this? It's just such (laughs) the visuals and yeah, it's just, it's so disturbing, but then still entertaining at the same time. As they're doing that, you're describing what happened to the rest of the Scottsboro boys, right? Where they're like, oh, so-and-so couldn't find a job and just died, um, died without any money. So-and-so died by, um, died by suicide. So-and-so died in addiction. Just none of them had, even the ones who managed to get out of prison didn't have very good lives. The interlocutor, the narrator, is having so much fun with this that he then wants to go on to do a cakewalk with everyone. Yeah. And that's when the performers are just like, we're done. They stop. Mm -hmm. They stop. They leave this white man doing his dance by himself. They start wiping off their makeup. They they clear the stage. They clear the chairs off the stage. But then in the clearing of the stage, they reposition the chairs in the image of, of a bus. And, and there's been this woman in the whole show. There's been this woman just kind of sitting around and you don't know what's going on. She never really has much. She doesn't have any lines. No. She's just there. Yeah. And you're like, what's what's going on? And you almost forget about her from time to time. And then there are moments where she does interact with the characters and but you but there's no dialogue. You don't really know mm-hmm. what's going on. As everyone clears out, she is left sitting alone in the bu- this bus formation. Then someone comes in and tells her to go to the back of the bus, and it's Rosa Parks. And it's really cool. It's especially cool doing some doing some reading. It's the significance of it, from what I understand, is that the Scottsboro Boys trials were one of the human rights violations that one of many human rights violations that inspired Rosa Parks to take her stand. It hits really hard. Yeah. And that's the Scottsboro Boys. <laughs> that's the end of the play. And that's the end of the play. Whoa. Hal, you've, you saw it. You didn't see it on Broadway, but you've seen a regional production. Yeah, I actually, I had a friend who was in a production of it in Chicago. So I saw it in 20, 2017. For a show that didn't do super well on Broadway, it's seen a pretty cool life in U.S. regionals, from what I have mm-hmm. understand and what I read. In Canada, virtually not at all. Yeah, I don't think it's ever been done here. I would love for it to. <laughs> yeah, and it also, after this, the same creative team took it to the UK. Oh, that's right. Where the young Vic produced it and then took it to the West End and it did very well there. Mm-hmm. So is it worth calling out some of the potential problems with this show now just so we have them on the table? Yeah. Like the the big challenge with this show is it's an all-white creative team. Yeah. Kander and Ebb wrote it. David Thompson wrote the book and Susan Stroman directed and choreographed it. And these are all white theater professionals. But this subject matter is like exactly is what they're good at. Yeah. So in a way, it's just like, okay, like I, I feel like they honestly could have like invited a black person to maybe at least choreograph it. I think that would have been good. Or write the book, get in there and, um, Mm -hmm. but I I will agree that Candor and Ever are no strangers to musicals that draw from parts of history that are problematic. The other thing that Kander and Ebb do really well that I think, Hal, you're getting at is that that feeling of exposing things and making the audience uh, receive that story in a specific way to make them question how they're receiving it mm-hmm. in the audience. So I think about Chicago and I think like, wow, we're really sitting there rooting for these murderers, you know? Straight up murderers. Yeah. And, and like the portrayal of the media. 
I really get that impression with this piece too, where you uh, you enter the theater and you begin to watch the show and it just makes you think. It makes you think about your own, the, the way you're receiving it, I think. The other controversy with this piece was that there were people protested this piece as it was on Broadway because they objected to the use of minstrel show imagery and blackface in the show itself. Right. And these protests were not insubstantial, and I think may have even contributed to a part of the show's closing early, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Was it Whoopi Goldberg ended up, I don't think Whoopi Goldberg had a hand in this personally, but Whoopi Goldberg has a hand in producing a lot of Broadway shows, and really liked this show, and ended up saying, people protesting this show, I'm not sure that they saw it, and if they saw it, I'm not sure they got it. Yeah. Mm. Sure, if if I heard that, oh, you know, they're... They're doing a minstrel show down on Broadway. I'd be like, hey, wait, what? what? But, yeah, exactly right. That's that's no good. But they're, they use the form to make a statement mm-hmm. that is a very important statement to be made. Yeah. I mean, after having recapped the plot, I'm, li- I'm reeling a bit again. I, I, re- I was reeling um, when I watched the boot for this earlier this week. I was reeling when I kind of, when I did my listen through earlier this week, and I'm reeling again because it's a powerful show. There's just one more thing that I want to say about the the case itself that I found really fascinating. Out of this case came a lot of Supreme Court decisions about your right to competent counsel. I think similar to the parade episode where we talked about some of the good things that came from it, I think there were a lot of really um, important Supreme Court decisions that this set precedent for. And I just wanted to mention those two before we dive into talking about this book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because actually, yeah, that's the thing is at least the show depicts it as their lawyer in the first trial was drunk, just pissed. Yep. Yep. So like that's that's what got them the retrial. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just like just like Parade. This was a event that led to a series of important human rights decisions and legislations. Mm-hmm. So the other thing I'll say, just to make it totally, totally clear, in this day and age with the cultural knowledge and context that we have now, there should have been more IPOC artists involved in the on the creative side of this show. That said, there's also no question that the artists working here are no slouches. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This is Susan Stroman and Kander and Eb working at their working at really the top of their game mm-hmm. to tell a really cool story. Well, and then also like they did provide uh, an opportunity for all of these black men to participate in American musical theater. Like, right? Absolutely. There aren't a lot of roles. For black men in, or like they weren't written for us. Right. And so it's nice that they were thinking of us when they wrote this show. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And 10 years ago, that was a significant thing. We can look at it today and be like, oh, but you got to have some um, some IBPOC artists on the creative team as well to really be able to speak that to that experience authentically. Mm-hmm. I don't think that was in the Broadway producer's head 10 years ago. It, it should have been, but it wasn't. Mm-hmm. So with all of that said, let's talk about the actual creation of this show because I fucking love this show. Book by David Thompson, who did Steel Pier that we're going to talk about right. sometime <laughs> this, is the whole, this is the whole steel pier team right? this yeah it is and prince of broadway and a couple other things i think how we could we got it we're gonna get you back for steel pier then we're gonna release this <laughs> yeah. partner with that it's so fascinating <laughs> music by john kander and fred ebb and then lyrics by 
them as well, who I'm sure you've heard of, but if not, Paul's going to geek out about them very soon. Music was orchestrated by Larry Hawkman. For everyone listening at home, uh, Larry Hawkman's probably one of the busiest orchestrators ever. Uh, did Spam a lot, Pippin Revival, Adam's Family, The Prom most recently. Big Fish, Something Rotten, etc., etc. Incredible. <laughs> uh, music was arranged by Glenn Kelly and music direction and vocal arrangements by David Loud, who has the perfect last name to be a music director. So, Paul, can you just give us like a quick candor and ebb something something? Sure, I would love to. Candor and Ebb have never written a musical in their life before this, yeah. and I think they did a fine job for two young upstarts. <laughs> okay, but actually, in all reality, and maybe this is like more of an opinion, they kind of sound like they sound really contemporary here. And so if you told me that and I didn't know who they were, I might believe you. The bridge to commencing in Chattanooga is the biggest contemporary musical theater bop. You know what I mean? <laughs> So good. Candor and Ebb, of course, are legendary Broadway composers. Their two biggest hits include Cabaret, which was one of their first, which was also a show that dealt with horrendous instances of human rights violations and horrendous parts of history and frames it with controversial entertainment tropes. I suppose would be the way to put that. Um, they also wrote Chicago, which is a very fascinating, very interesting show that you might have heard of. But uses the same convention, right? One that we mentioned earlier, right? Um, and then their other big one would be Kiss of the Spider Woman. They went on to start work on the Scottsboro Boys in the early 2000s. And then Fred Ebb passed away right around there. And so they paused for a few years naturally, John Kander was like, oh, geez, my... Fred Ebb was the lyricist and John Kander is the composer. Mm. John Kander was like, geez, my close friend slash writing partner who I've been with for my whole life has passed away. I'm going to take a year off. And then came back to the team uh, and was like, all right, I can finish the lyrics as well as the music. Let's finish this show. That explains why it's credited as such. This is truly a show where lyrics are by John Kander and Fred Ebb. Right. Whereas, and I mean, it's not a huge difference. I think usually they just credit themselves as music and lyrics by Kander and Ebb. Mm -hmm. But this is very specifically John Kander carried the ball to the finish line here. Wow. It's really a treat in a lot of ways to hear classic musical theater song forms used in a post-2000s production. That isn't like a throwback production, like, I don't know, freaking Bullets Over Broadway or Prince of Broadway or something, you know? How, what, how do you feel about Kander and Ebb? You write a lot of music. And you're a really nice composer, and you're also not a... You write a lot of really contemporary music. Oh, thank you. It's, it's funny. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I guess I do write a lot of music, but I often don't show it to a lot of people. Mm. So, like, yeah. Paul, you're, like, you're actually one of the few people who I've shown my music to. Aww. So it's, like, just really nice to hear you talk about my music when, like, the rest of the world doesn't really know that I'm much of a composer. Although oh, I'm, a, I'm trying to do it, more of it. <laughs> I just take it for I take it for granted from sitting in the, the common room in the... The Mayfield Theater, um, whatever, lounge. At the buffet? Getting, uh, no, getting... I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, like in, the, in the common room for the for the hotel room and getting to hear some of this music. Oh, that's so cool. Be better question. What's your relationship like as a artist with um, Kander and Ebb? Like, I know Chicago. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm a fan of the movie. Um, yeah. But, like, a lot of, like, those older shows anyways, I 
didn't really identify with them as totally. a black performer, really. And, like, I didn't yeah, really yeah. see myself in them. So, like, to have this show that is written by them for people yes. like me, mm-hmm. that's really yes. exciting to me. Yes. Uh, and so, like, I love the music in this show. Oh, like, my I think gosh. it's yes. so good. Absolutely. Did you find it as catchy as I did? Like, every song, the opening number, uh, Chattanooga... Like, all of them. I Just in my head, constantly. Hey, hey, hey has been stuck in my head ever since I watched this. It's there. It's in there. For me, it was the first, like, when they're, the first time they're in the prison cell and the, the youngest Scottsboro boy sings, um, when are we going to go back home? Or go back home. Called? Yeah. Yes. And it's a, this typical AABA classic musical theater song form Mm -hmm. that's kind of fallen out of fashion for better or for worse in um, today's musical theater industry. It felt like a breath of fresh air almost, which is weird because it's, it felt like a breath of fresh air to hear a classic musical theater (laughs) song form from masters of that song form. Totally. I think like a lot of Kander and Ebb shows, they, they thread the line really well between writing a lot of music, but letting the book do a lot of talking as well. Right. Like if we're going to compare it to something like The Pirate Queen, which Jill and I covered last week, or Les Mis, something like Boobiel and Schoenberg, where the music is just everything and it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. They'll put plop the music down and make their point, And then you'll have these five, five to ten minute book scenes. I think they use it all really artfully. Like it's, it never actually feels like we're sitting in a moment too long. And I think that's both musically and like from a book perspective. My final note was there's no question that this score is written by the masters of the post-Golden Age musical theater. Mm -hmm. I think that John Kander carries the baton to the finish line really well after the death of his collaborator. I think it holds up really well as a score. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. The one thing I would add is maybe one of the reasons this sounds... Not contemporary, but sounds different than other Kander and Ebb scores. One of the textures they have in play that they haven't had in play in the past scores is that this is virtually all male voices. Right. Which certainly isn't in play in Chicago. Chicago's famously mm-hmm. a very, um, very woman-centric show. Mm-hmm. So to have this show that is, that's almost exclusively the texture they're using is really cool. Do you want to play the same game, Jill, <laughs> that we played with... Um, Pirate Queen, where we rate it as if Scott, as if Kander and Ebb had never written a show in their life, then we rate it based on everything we know about Kander and Ebb. Um, no, because I actually like this more than <laughs> the other ones. That's so. so funny. I I don't feel so. I don't feel similar. What do you? Okay. <gasps> I, okay what, what do you? What do you think, Hal? Drama. You, you, we have a we have a guest, so you can be the tie-breaking vote. <laughs> I don't feel like I'm like an expert enough. To... <laughs> I know. I kind of feel like we should just rate it. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. Hal, on Monkeys and Playbills, we have a very uh, thoroughly thought out rating system. Tried and true, thoroughly tested. We take our 10 playbills, and against that, we wager our monkeys. And then the monkeys are essentially the numbers 1 through 10 of how we feel about it. So out of 10 playbills, how many monkeys do you, Hal, give the music and lyrics? Uh, I mean, I loved it. I'd give it like nine, 10. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I feel the same. 
I think I'm at an eight. And the only reason I'm at an eight, which we'll talk about more later, is that I think the interpretation of the music and lyrics is what would push it to a 10, like the performances of it. So I'm going to say eight. Eight with the knowledge that the cast rating will add to that. Correct. I can get behind that. I'm going to say nine. Because I love Kander and Neb, I think this is a the last score that does them uh, does them proud, and then I bet it'll pop into a nine and a half or a ten when we talk about performances. Okay, is it time to talk about the book? Let's talk about the book. David Thompson. Ah, uh, yes, Dave. He's part of the Steel Pier team. I guess he first started working with Kander and Neb on Flora and the Red Menace. Yes, which was also a, an under one hundred. Can't wait. And um, apparently he wrote a um, a new book for Chicago for the 96 revival. Oh. Which is the revival that's still up right now? And then, yeah, it was the revival that made it popular again. And then we got the movie. So I, like, yeah. Yeah. So in my mind, I'm just kind of just like, <laughs> okay, so this guy's kind of responsible for that movie that we love. I'm inclined to Ish. think you're probably right. Also, for someone who doesn't know um, very much about Candor and Ebb, that was a that was a hot take. That was a take. deep pull. That was a hot pull. Absolutely, it was. <laughs> um, I think I think that's a pretty fair conclusion to draw. Anyone who knows much more than us who's listening, please write in. But I'd say, yeah, David Thompson probably has a a fair amount to do with the success of Chicago as a piece. That's really cool to think about. Yeah, what do we think of his book in this piece? Hal goes first. That's so mean for a guest. <laughs> okay, fine. I am doing it mainly because I'm like, ooh, I want to know. I want to know. Like, I'm so Yeah, totally, curious. totally. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just think it's, I think it's just, it's very well crafted. I think, again, once you can get past the, that, like, it's a minstrel show, but, like, it's a show within a show. Again, it's par- the delivery, like, the performance is so much what makes this show work. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's like... The layers that the actors are able to show when they're, like, delivering their lines, you know, for the minstrel show, but then, like, you know, you can see as a performer, they're just like, I don't want to be doing this, Mm -hmm. but this is the show that you all came to see. It's so much the performance, but, like, it has to be written. It has to be written so well that, like, you're able to get that out of your performers. Yeah, no, exactly. That's a great point. Okay, Paul. I I agree completely. I think that's really astute, Hal. I I think that it's very well thought out. If we're talking about the book as the wider structure of the piece as well, mm-hmm. you're trying to tell a story that goes over a huge length of time. Even using the the framing device of a play within a play, which has almost become a parody at this point, re- works really well here. Uh, and I think that the decision to keep on coming back to the cell, and we just get to hear the uh, the Scottsboro Boys talking to each other. Not getting too bogged down in history, this is what happened. They tell that very well, but always making sure to come back to, and these are the people who it happened to, mm-hmm. and here's how they're feeling, is a really, a really smart thing to do. I think it's a real nice book. That's what makes it so good. Like, in in other adaptations that we've covered, like shows that are from true events, I feel like miss that mark a little bit. Like, we talked about it in Parade, where it was like, oh, we didn't really get to know anybody. And I think it's written in such a way that we get to know these people. And like Hal said, that sort of switch between the performance and the and the person, like, I think that further solidifies who these people are, their relationships to one another. I think it's 
it's crafted really well in that way. Somehow by making it performer, making it clear that it's performers performing a piece, we get closer to them at, to the characters. Yeah, and normally I hate that. Like I hate yeah, the right? play within a play, but I think it's like so good here. Yeah. For me, like when I was watching it, I like and knowing all the context of like the protests and this and that, I was like, my opinion of this show is going to come down to what they do with the minstrel concept, right? Yeah. And having it be like a form of code switching, where it goes from this is who I am when I'm performing for a white authority figure, like we see in the, in like the trials and like throughout much of the show, to what they sound like when they're just talking to each other and how it's a completely different voice and musical texture. That was when I was like, oh shit, they're doing something really, really mm-hmm. cool here. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, a, that's a really astute point, Daph. I agree completely. Yeah, like the distance from the showy... Like, the numbers and then, like, the actual scenes that are, like, rooted in the reality of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There were moments where I, like, you're, you know, you're in the in the applause and then it just gets in, it goes back to the jail cell and it just falls into this realism. Yes. It makes you so uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but, like, in, in the right way. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I just picture myself in the theater applauding for the number, like you're saying, and then... We're back in the jail cell and the applause is still happening, but you're faced with that stark reality of like, this is nine young men and boys like in this situation. Yeah. And you're still like the applause is trailing. Oh, that's important. We keep we keep on doing it. We keep on going, calling them young men and then boys. And I think it's important to just note because some of them appear a little bit older just because of the performers they cast. Mm-hmm. But if you do some historical research, these were kids. Yeah. They were young. They were literally boys. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty tough to swallow. Yeah, that one moment where the youngest boy just like asks, like, "What's rate?" Oh, <sighs> yes. Oh, it's just like that was like that's the moment that it's just like, oh yeah, these are boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they don't even understand the crime that they are accused of. Yes, yes. and it's such a they're they're in such a fucked up situation. That that's not even being seen by the judge and jury and whatever. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So part of the this podcast is we try to figure out why it wasn't a successful show. And I'm I'm having yep. trouble pinpointing that because like it sounds like we all kind of agree. Like we're we enjoyed the lyrics and the music. The book is like well crafted. And spoiler alert, it's gonna be kind of across the board. <laughs> yeah. And so so I'm trying to pinpoint like why this wasn't a commercial success. And I found this, I always look to the reviews because usually that's an indicator. And there's this one review from the Times, of course, Charles Isherwood, so not our regular reviewer, Ben Brantley. Isherwood wrote, quote, I'm not sure it's possible to honor the experience of the men it portrays while turning their suffering into a colorful sideshow. So did, did he miss the point? I mean, I feel like this show could be easily misunderstood. Mm-hmm. And it was. I feel like, as as a black person, I feel like white people don't always want to see the racism that's right in front mm-hmm. of them. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that's part of it, too, is that this show is really putting the racism in the forefront. And it's just like, you cannot watch this show and not see the racism that is inherent, like, just glaring. Yes. Shouting at you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And so I feel like there are some people who are just going to be like, instead of addressing that, they're just going to be like, oh, I don't like that. Right. 
Yes, absolutely. Let's put a pin on that for a little bit until we get to the Tonys, because the Tonys this year were especially bananas and egregious, as I hinted at at the very start. For the moment, let's rate the book. So, back to our scientific rating system. (laughs) Out of ten playbills, how many monkeys are we going to give this book? Nine. Not ten, because ten is perfect, and it's hard to be perfect. But nine, because, jeez... This book tells the story, the story of a horrific uh, historical event and tells it in a way that it feels like entertaining is the wrong word to use, but that's what it is, right? And that's kind of Kander and M's jam. Mm -hmm. It's entertaining to watch. It's also horrific and it's also uncomfortable. It's like Hal said, staring racism in the face. This was a tough show for me to watch, but I understood, I understand this story much more in depth than I did when I started. And that's through the power of the book and the book and the structure of the piece. So nine out of 10. Nice. Hal, what do you think? I I would agree with that nine. Like it it's it's just so good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> I agree. I'm with you. I think those abrupt shifts are really what does it for me. Yeah. Like Because you have fun, you're having a good time. Even if they're singing about something like singing about the electric chair and you're like, oh yeah. But you're having fun. And then all of a sudden, boom, floors out from under you. And mm-hmm. you're like, oh, geez, woof. Totally. You, like, you feel you feel guilty applauding. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. You know that it's the the norm in theater to applaud these performers who, mm-hmm. just, who just did that. Like, yes. they were on stage and, like, they just did that for you. And so it's just like, yes, I want to be applauding, but it's just the content of what I just witnessed is yep. so uncomfortable. But, yeah. like, I need to... I need to... I need to... <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's what makes the minstrel show framing device especially effective because you're being reminded of a really uncomfortable history. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? You're, you get lost in it for a second and you're like, geez, everyone's singing and dancing so well and it sounds great. Geez, musicals are fun to watch. And then you're reminded instantly, no, that's kind of the attitude that has led to a lot of horrific human rights violations and dehumanization mm-hmm. of uh, black performers. So it really, you're, you're faced with it and it's hard to face. This feels like the right time yeah. To start talking about my best friend, Susan Strom. Just kidding. Someone Susan I like a lot. How <laughs> you're not you haven't um, you haven't hung out in Winnipeg that much, but Jill Jillian Willems is the Susan Stroman of Winnipeg. No, I'm not. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Let's talk about direction and choreo. Directed and choreographed by my aunt, Susan Stroman. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Adopted stepmother. Yeah. Associate director and choreographer was Jeff Whiting. And then the assistant director and choreographer was Eric Santagata. And that's our uh, creative team. I mentioned the music director a little earlier because yeah. our music director also did the vocal arrangements. David Loud. Let's yeah. get loud. Let's get loud. Okay. <laughs> From what I understand, Susan Stroman is a pretty driving force behind this. That's not surprising once you see the way that the staging and choreo seem to really go hand in hand with almost in a devised way. Yeah. With this piece. I don't know. I got that feeling. That it was like everything kind of was happening in tandem. She was on this from the very beginning. And she's got a lot of experience tackling controversial subject matter because she made her career with the producers. Right. Mm. Big important thing. I think that hot take, Susan Stroman really knows what she's doing as a director and choreographer and does a really nice job here. 
she's always struck me. I don't, I haven't watched as many interviews as you have, Jill, but she always strikes me as someone who's kind of academically minded. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So someone who does a like lot of research. Like an historian. Yeah. Yeah. So when it comes to something like a throwback style like this to having to delve into a older style, she's really delving into the nuances of that style in a way that comes from a lot of research and not just generally knowing the tropes. Yes. I'm sure she does that in her direction as well. Like in, I guess that's the the cohesive nature of, of her style is that like, I'm assuming, like I know she's a, an historian for movement, but I would imagine that that would carry through into her directing style too. Hal, what do you think? I think that it, she did a great job with it. But, like, again, when I said, like, I feel like it would have been great if they brought on, like, a black choreographer. I feel that way because, like, the history of, of vaudeville and that, like, a lot of vaudeville's history is, like, appropriated from black culture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I feel like it would have been a great opportunity to have a black person come and give back to this style that was appropriated from us. Yeah. When you really think about, like, minstrel shows as they were popular back then, like, they were made popular because white people were consuming it. And, like, I feel like white people choreographed the minstrel shows back then. So why why not have them do it now? <laughs> right, <too? laughs> right. <laughs> like, I feel like that adds to the authenticity of right. putting on a minstrel show. In- right. Sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh, yes. Yeah, I agree. I like the... um direction side of it more than the choreo i think what yeah that's not what i expected that's so interesting i like the simplicity of and this might trickle down into design a little bit but the simplicity of the space and using just the chairs and finding different ways to tell story with chairs and people like is one of my favorite things. And so I just, every time there was something else, I was like, oh, this is exciting. This is like come from away before come from away. Like people yeah. associate that style with it. But I'm like, no, this was this was before. And, and Oh, you just kind of ruined my joke for the design. Shoot. Oh no, what did I do? It's okay. It's okay. I'll get to it. I'll do it again in the design and then producer Daph can decide what's going to be the, what's going to, what's going to be the best joke. Okay. Wow. You're making producer Daphne decide who's funnier. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want me to do that. Like that's not yeah. a game I know. That's not a game I win. I know. <laughs> I thought you were going to go head over heels for this choreo, Jill. It's simple. It's throwback. It's big pictures. Oh yeah. Like she strikes. She strikes all these pictures. You know what I mean? Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I think it's it's very good. But what jumps out at me as being really special is the direction. Her choreo lives very much in the world that I choreograph in. It's very like, bend your knees, find the floor, do a box step, like that sort of thing. But the most useful part of her contribution, I think, is the direction here. There's a couple of things I wanted to mention in the direct, as honorable mentions in the direction and choreo category. Oh, sure. They do a um, a shadow play for you. You have to make friends with the truth. It's so good. It's so good. And it's like a parable kind of thing. Yeah, Haywood mm-hmm. sings it, right? Mm-hmm. Haywood sings downstage and the and the show is behind. Oh, yeah, it's excellent. Yeah. The other concept that is a staging concept that I really loved was it's so simple. But whenever they're in the trial, they're in this big semicircle with all the chairs. Mm-hmm. And as some of the Scarsborough boys get out, 
They just, they bring the circle tighter, obviously, right? Yeah. And it's so powerful just to be coming back in the second part of this play and the circle's significantly smaller than it was. Right. It really struck me. I was like, whoa, that's a so simple, so powerful image. Yeah. Yeah. I can't believe I forgot about the shadow play. And like it it, it ties into uh, Haywood's final moment on trial. Yeah. So like it's foreshadowing. Mm. Oh my God. Oh, <laughs> it's excellent. shadows i love that that is and props to the play in general for once again choosing even though you have nine scottsboro boys choosing one to be the semi and i think they handle it really well to be harewood's like a semi-central character but not so much that you forget about the other ones right Mm. and haywood patterson wrote a book about that experience no right Mm -hmm. I, i didn't know that fair enough I think that having Haywood Patterson's book there makes him a natural because he has his voice written out or that person's experience written by themselves to draw from, I think makes Haywood Patterson a very smart choice as sort of the the main link. So direction and choreo. It doesn't end up being one category because it's uh, Ms. Ms. Stroman just crushing it left and right. <laughs> where's it? Uh, where's it going to go out of 10? I'd give it like an eight. Yeah. I have no trouble accepting that. <laughs> Jeez, this is a high. Yeah. I mean, like sh- maybe, maybe seven. Cause like, sure. I wish they would have included a black person in mm-hmm. that. But like, yeah, totally. Again, I think she did well what she was trying to do. Yep. Yes. She, she went in with a lot of humanity and a lot of empathy into this story and rides it. It's such a fine line to ride and she rides it really well. So I'll, I'll, I'll second an eight. Absolutely. I I will do a seven and a half because I like the direction more. I think the choreo gets a bit repetitive. Although now that I'm thinking about it, like, was that on purpose? Probably. Yeah, I think it's like a little less good than the direction. So seven and a half. Sure. But then plus one for the shadow play? Oh, fine. Plus two for the shadow play. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Auntie Strowman's done it Auntie again. Str- no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> hey, we did it. We talked about the direction. Let's talk about the design. Scenic design by Beowulf Borat, who did Spelling Bee. That was his first design project on Broadway. And then pretty much everything else after Spelling Bee. <laughs> like so many things. <laughs> Costume design by Tony Leslie James. Lighting design by Ken Billington. Sound design by Peter Helensky and hair, wig, and makeup design by Wendy Parson. My big question about this design is, do you think that Beowulf Borat got his gig on Come From Away from this show? A producer saw it and was like, that's it. Or no, a producer, they were in meetings for Come From Away and they were like, we're thinking of doing it with some chairs. And they were like... We got the guy for you. <laughs> Maybe it was like the same thing that Hal Prince stubbed his toe on the bleachers. Like maybe it was <laughs> right, like yeah, yeah. Beowulf for it. So he'd been he'd been hired already, but he didn't have a he didn't have a, a come from away design yeah. yet. And he was having and trouble he and over he a chair. tripped over a chair yep. and then he was like, Oh, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, but in all seriousness, what do we think of the set? I like it. I think part of it is because like we start off with the chairs at the top of the show, the circle of chairs, and then they use the chairs for everything. Mm-hmm. Like they are so well used. Like when yeah. they use the chairs to create the jail cell. Oh, yes. It just like 
it looks stunning. Yep. Like, or, or at the very start of the show when they go and in, move into the play, the play within a play, and they make the train. And they make the train yeah. of chairs and the tambourines Ooh. they'd all just been playing become the wheels of the train. Oh. Oh, yeah. It's good stuff. I love that. Awesome. And then there was some like draped fabric at the back that gave like a little bit of a sheen. Yeah, like a black see-through piece of fabric that was like draped on the whole back of the, but it just in front of the psych. Oh, it was just beautiful when it was lit a certain way. Mm. Like Daphne said, chef's kiss. Is it possible that the minimalism of this is another reason why maybe it didn't uh, it didn't quite play? Ooh. On Broadway? Like, do you mean compared to... Compared to the travesty that is the the show that took all the Tonys away from this show this year, which we'll get to in a mm. second, which is a show that was very much a big old Broadway show. Right. Yeah. Uh, but as I'm saying that, I'm not sure that's true, because once again, Come From Away, a few years later, uses virtually this exact same concept in a very different way. Yeah. It's the only thing that's similar between Come From Away and Scottsboro Boys. But uses this and just crushes. Yeah. I don't ever, I was never watching this being like, man, I wish they'd really done the sets. Mm-hmm. Like so much so, I can't, even, I can't even imagine them doing it with a big old train in a big jail cell or whatever, right? But again, it's also like, you know, a traditional minstrel show wouldn't have a big set. Yeah. Right. So. I think they were just like, you know what? Chairs. Fuck it, chairs. It's working. Yeah. And it does work. It works really well is the point. Absolutely. Before rating, can we talk about the lighting design and rate them all together? We should. Because in such a minimalist set, the lighting, they're really working together. Yes. The lighting's so good. Yeah. The lighting's so good. (laughs) Oh, I loved it. I loved the gobos they used. Yeah. Like on the floor. I love the way that they lit the chairs to make different shadows. Hmm. Yeah. They do this they do this thing where I'm not sure if either of you noticed this or maybe I was even reading into it too far, but it seems like whenever one of the Scottsboro boys is playing a character who is higher status or a white character, they're in a follow spot. Oh, I didn't notice that. Oh. I, I'm pretty sure this is the case. Yeah. And then it disappears when they're actually being one of the Scottsboro boys. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. It's really cool. It's really fascinating. I didn't notice that. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what the thematic connection is. I think it might be a status thing. Okay. But there's definitely something, there was something very significant about their playing. This indicates that they are someone who's not one of the Scottsboro boys. Right. right. With their playing the lawyer or the drunk lawyer or something. They're in a tight spot. <laughs> the lawyer or the drunk lawyer. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be a drunk lawyer for Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. Yeah, no, I, I really love the lighting. And again, like the shadow play, like, so yes. good. Yeah, oh. right, right. <laughs> Just perfect. Okay, so I guess we should put all of those design aspects together. Although, did we talk about the costumes? No, not yet. Costumes are also oh, great. Yeah. They're so good. And like, I love that, like, <laughs> they were, uh, again, because there's so much double casting where, like, actors are playing the different people like it's it's simple simple little things that like you know that they're able to just quickly put on and take off like those kinds of things yeah. it's for for, the, for most of the show all of them are in generic whites right white clothing mm-hmm. which can be like you said added on to or taken away from mm-hmm. and then for the top and the tail they're in more fully um more full um, vaudeville minstrel gear and it's so useful i love when we can see how everything works like i like when things like that are on full display like you can see you can see the strings yeah like i like that and so what hal's saying about 
it just being a small piece, I think that is what's so effective about these costumes. Let's do some ratings. Design. General design wash, because the design works so in such tandem here. I feel comfortable rating it all in one. Yeah. I think so. Out of ten playbills, how many monkeys do we give the design? Eight and a half, nine? Like, it's just good. (laughs) It's good. (laughs) We're good good. again. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's especially funny... To see, I agree, eight and a half, nine, and it's especially, not funny, fascinating to see all these elements from this designer that would be used for a really long-running smash hit come from away. Used very well and very rightfully so, come from away is a smash hit, it's a beautiful show. But same elements used here, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Same, um, same tools and same tricks in a lot of ways. It's really cool to see them used in an entirely different context. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really like the design. I think it's a nine for me. Absolutely. Okay. Enough about talking about the things in this show that don't work. Let's talk about the performances. Oh my god. Just so good. (laughs) We're finally here. We can finally let go and talk about all these performers. This cast came to play. Oh shit. Where do we even begin? Joshua Henry. Joshua Henry. I was going to say our favorite son. Joshua Henry. Oh, we must. Wow, wow, wow. Just so good. Just absurd. Like, no one can see me right now, but my mouth is fully open. Like, I was just like, uh. (laughs) And then the interview where he describes being in the Heights uh, at, like, performing on Broadway in In the Heights and then rehearsing this show, like, at the same time. Oh, that's so cool. Like, just... Just, like, living the dream. Well, yeah. (laughs) To say the least, right? Wow. Did you, Jill, did you know he was born in Winnipeg? I did. He stepped into American Idiot as the favorite son. Oh, that's Sorry, that was, it was American Idiot that he was in, not in the Heights. Right, yeah, yeah, totally. He was in while he was in rehearsals for this. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I found out that he was born in Winnipeg. And I was, like, just so blown away. Joshua Henry is outstanding in this. Oh, just so good. I've seen him. I saw him in Violet. Um, oh my gosh. Oh, that's so I just. Cool. Yeah, he's just amazing. So, vocally, he's got this really amazing connection to text, both like, you know, in the scene work and also in the songs. Yeah. It's remarkable to watch. It's a masterclass. For an ensemble show, the show really does hinge on him in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And he turns it out in every way possible. It's excellent. Sounds incredible, grounded, connected. Two other um, really strong honorable mentions I want to mention are um, Coleman Domingo and Forrest McClendon, Mm -hmm. who play Mr. Bones and Mr. Tambo, these kind of clown characters. They've got enormous jobs on their hands. Just vocally, the way they're jumping around. Oh my gosh. They're jumping around to various registers at some points, to to various dialects, various registers, going from jumping from falsetto to um, super deep chest voice in like Mm -hmm. seconds. And they just, they're excellent. And just their, their comedic chops are just so good. Because, like, part, so of, good. part of their, um, like, Mr. Bones and Mr. Tambo's character is that yep. they are the Uncle Tom characters that are, like, mm. friends yeah. with the interlocutor. Uh, like, they, and, and so they even say in the opening number that they're the ones who are a lot of the times playing the white characters. And so, like, they, it's a very much an ensemble show, but, like, mm-hmm. they are... Them, those two characters are an ensemble of themselves. Oh, yeah. So Absolutely. many characters. I just can't even understand the quick shifts that they go through to oh, serve this so story. It's really remarkable. Oh, huge fan. 
And then the other person I was really impressed with was this, the youngest cast member. Yes, the kiddo. Jeremy Gums. The electric chair tap sequence was so well performed. Oh my God. My favorite sequence in the show from both a lighting and a choreography perspective. It was stunning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was just very impressed um, by him in that number. And throughout the show, of course, but specifically, it just really caught my attention. And he was in The Lion King when he was little. The tiniest, tiny Simba. Oh, that's so cute. I wanted to mention, specifically for Jill, but for everyone as well, that um, John Cullum, um, who plays the interlocutor, interlocutor, mm-hmm. um, who also does a really, really wonderful job. That's a, uh, do you know if I'm, if I'm feeling some, um, some really uncomfortable um, sensations, facing down some uncomfortable sensations as a white person watching this, can you imagine performing in it? You know what I mean? He does a, does a hell of a job. Very good. Very good. He played old Max in the Grinch at one point. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Is this the, the same Grinch that we covered this is the same our- Grinch that we covered in the Christmas episode. He played Old Max, so he was the one telling the story, the yeah. narrator. Oh wow! Yeah. See, yeah. Mm, I'm gonna have to think about <laughs> about that because <laughs> I ca- I can't decide if that makes that it adds validity to that role, knowing he has played <laughs> it at one point. A legendary broader. Yeah, performer. <laughs> like I'm kind of like, oh, now, like I had thought I had really decided how I felt about the Grinch, and now knowing that. That he's done it too. I'm like, oh, maybe there's actually something there. I, I'm probably so wrong. There's like, not. I'm, pro- yeah. <laughs> but you're making me question that, Paul, and that's not cool. <laughs> and just everyone, when we get to the ensemble parts of this piece as well, you watch a pretty good ensemble. It's, I mean, we all love ensembles. Um, ensembles are awesome. When you watch a really good ensemble and they are breathing as one yes they're functioning as this we've all had that moment where you see a show or a part of a show where it's a an outstanding ensemble Mm -hmm. that's what you've got here oh yeah they're moving as like one big centipede or something you know what i mean (laughs) it's really i don't know is that a weird thing a weird comparison to make i I don't know like like you are so smart and then sometimes you (laughs) no this is not what I mean, but it's just your compliments leave something to be desired there, Diggers. <laughs> you know, that really flattering comparison of a giant yeah. multi-footed bug. That's what you guys are like. Oh, like that's my least favorite bug too. I'm so afraid of centipedes. I hate them. <laughs> I think what you're getting at is that like feeling of an amoeba. The the, yes. the feeling How is amoeba how is that better? They're so tiny, you can't even you can't even see them. They're so small, you would never even know it was there. I don't know. I know what you're saying, totally. So I guess we should rate these performers, but I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say we all have the same rating. Oh yeah, tens, tens, tens across the board. Tens, yeah. I mean, eleven, twelve. Yeah, right. Eleven or twelve. I try not to hand that out too easily, but there's. Nothing to be done to make it better. The only way it could be better is if they reached through the power of time and handed me a thousand dollars. That's the only oh, way yeah, I yeah, could yeah. make it even better. <laughs> but like again, those shifts that like when it goes yeah. from you know show stopping number to like heartbreaking scene in the jail cell, it's just instant. Yeah, I would mention as as proof of the ten, I noted specifically the the shout, the second chance song, um, which is like halfway through the show. Mm-hmm. Shout. Da, 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 da. Oh yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Halfway yes. through the show, so they've 
these performers have been on stage the whole time. Maybe yes. once in a blue moon, they get to go and take a sip of water before they get back on. Mm-hmm. And that's, it sounds and looks phenomenal. They're not showing any kind of scenes. Mm-hmm. It sounds absurdly good halfway through the show of a show where they're on stage the whole time. That's some real pros. You know what I mean? Not even showing it. Absolutely. Jeez. I also wanted to call out, I know this isn't my podcast, but damn it, I wanted to, I wanted to talk about this. <laughs> I really loved the moment when you see the interlocutor's like warm facade give way to that like, oh no, you're just like everyone else. It was in the jail cell when he's like, yeah. sing for me. Or like, like, would it hurt you guys to smile? And like, mm-hmm. that's when they kind of turn on him a little bit with that kind of, with changing the lyrics of that song to... I don't know what the original lyrics are supposed to be, but to, to like, and I saw my father hanging from a tree. And it's right. just, it's this beautiful little moment of like, we're not going to be the people that you want us to be. And it's just such a beautiful moment of them saying all of that, but with a smile on their face. And mm-hmm. it's just, it's, it's so well done, those dynamics. Yeah, well, it's just like, that song is very much just like, he, the interlocutor is just like, I want to say it's the Make America Great Again. He's just like, yeah, let's go back to those times when it was better. And it was just like, better for who? Yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, I'm thinking about, as an actor, how difficult it is to be present and ready. Like how much energy it takes to just be in that readiness position at all times. And I think for the hour and 45 of this show, they are all in that state of readiness. I commend them on the focus and attention that that alone takes. It's yeah. amazing. 10 out of 10. Actually, I want to touch on, you know, it's, it's a show that's like an hour and 45. One thing we haven't talked about is that this is a one act show. It's a one it's act. A one act. <laughs> like, <laughs> yep. I feel like that, yep. I feel like that could be something that has, has to do with why it wasn't maybe as successful as other shows. Ooh, like, you know, I think, one act shows aren't often super successful on Broadway. I think that's part of it. Yeah. I mean, I think Come From Away is... It's an outlier. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. I hadn't even thought of that because I love a one act. Every show should be, you shouldn't be in a theater for more than 90 minutes. Absolutely. I'm a strong believer. I'm going to write that. That's your epitaph. I'm writing that Absolutely. on your stone. <laughs> we, can, we can maybe stretch it to 110 minutes if you let me go get another drink at intermission. But yeah. other than that, I'm not interested. <laughs> Paul Degers, yeah. <laughs> Now's the time. We've established that this show is absurd. It's absurdly good. Yeah. It's powerful. It's uncomfortable in all the best ways. It's a lot of artistry on play. Let's start to talk about the Tonys, the historical context, and why this didn't crack 100 or even come close. So, the Tony Awards. 65th Tony Awards. Uh, June 12th, 2011, hosted by Neil Patrick Harris, I think. Out of the last 10 years, if I were to guess Neil Patrick Harris hosted, I'm, I would be right probably 40% of the time. <laughs> and you are right. It was Neil Patrick Harris. <laughs> yes! <laughs> so how many nominations did Scottsboro Boys get? Scottsboro Boys received 12 nominations. Yep. Second only to uh, Book of Mormon. So for all of us playing along at home... Book of Mormon received 14 nominations and won nine. Scottsboro Boys received 12 and won zero. Zero, y'all. There's an entire <sighs> podcast we could do just talking about the really uncomfortable irony that is Book of Mormon beating this show at the Tonys. Like, when we're talking about depictions of black folks on stage, 
Oof. Yeah, that's oof is the way to put it. Yeah. What's so interesting is that, like, Book of Mormon is, was just so successful that, like, for a long time, it, it was a dream show of mine. Absolutely. I didn't even really know the Scottsboro Boys when it first came out. And, like, mm-hmm. this show should have been on my dream list for, I, I don't know why it wasn't. Well, it's because... I, I don't know if do you remember watching this. Paul, I think I remember we were watching together. them. We watched them together. Yeah. Joe and I watched them together <laughs> at a friend's house. I remember it very well. Yeah, me too. And at the time, exactly like you said, Hal, the buzz was Book of Mormon. It was yeah. like, oh, look at the, a show has made musical theater cool again. Yeah, right. And Scottsboro Boys was, you saw the performance at the Tonys and they performed Commencing in Chattanooga, which doesn't really have any connection to the story. And you're like, oh, geez, that seems like a nice show. Mm-hmm. Cool. Okay, back to Book of Mormon. Right. Yeah. Without any kind of knowledge of really the the gravity of what this show is. Mm-hmm. I also remember it being kind of overshadowed by some of the revivals that were happening at the time. Like Anything Goes was happening and people were like so excited yeah. about about that. Uh, War Horse was there, was up oh, there as well. Oh, that's right. In the play category and everyone was excited about the puppets. Oh, yeah. The How to Succeed revival was this year as well. With... Oh my gosh, um, I just called him Harry Potter. Harry. I was going to call him Harry Potter, but his name is Daniel Radcliffe. <laughs> his name is Daniel, and, and he did this show to get away from people calling him Harry Potter. I know. And we just and did, did that thing. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sister Act was this year. Sister Act, Sister was, Act the was this one. year, yeah. right? Well, Sister Act is the show where Hal and I met for oh. at Mayfield. Just so everyone knows, that's what we were working on together. It was a really busy year with a lot of variety as far as shows go. You're going to, you're really going to go and let Scottsboro boys go away with no Tonys, you know? Am I correct in remembering that both Forrest McClendon and Coleman Domingo were, like, they were both nominated in the featured actor of in a musical category? That is correct. And John John Larroquette took it instead for the How to Succeed revival. I can't, I can't get behind that win. I'm sorry, John Larroquette. Did you, did you, did you play five different people <laughs> over the course of a musical? Did, did you do that? No, he wore a suit and walked around. Like he, that was it, you know? And yeah, it just bugs me so much. Okay, I, I wanted to say that something I read on the Wikipedia page for Scottsboro Boys it is the most nominated show to not win any Tonys. Wow, wow, wow. It had 12 nominations and no wins. And then the previous record was held by Steel Pier. Yes. And Chicago, the original production of Chicago. Both of those shows had 11 nominations and no wins. So Candor and Ebb have had a real tough time. So the revival will finally win some Tonys. There we go. Oh. It'll pull like a do a do a color purple type thing. Oh yeah. sure. Right? Where color where color purple was a beautiful show. Yeah. But the original production, I mean, this original production is great, but the original production of Color Purple apparently didn't quite showcase it. Right. Until this revival, that was just absurd. Yeah. Like, cause all the reviews were bad as well. Reviewers didn't like it. The Broadway community was not into it. And it, there was also protests because of the um, what people were perceiving as insensitive portrayals of uh, minstrelry and blackface. The champions of this show weren't really out, you know what I mean? Right. At any point in this t- at this time. Right. There was no one to really champion it and carry it through. Mm-hmm. That's my theory at any rate. Not to throw the Tonys under the bus, but you know, I think they'll recover from whatever we say on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh-huh. They're a very big commercial enterprise. Book of Mormon's making them a ton of money. Scottsboro Boys, even if it is a big success, is never going to be a blockbuster. 
Well, it had already closed at that point. What's the point of giving a Tony to a show that's already closed? But in this case, there's so many points. There's, yeah. Because it's a really important show. <laughs> yeah. But but you're right. Like, they're not thinking about that when they make that decision. So those were the Tonys that year, and it's absurd. I certainly didn't realize it at the time as a, someone in my early 20s just watching and getting into Broadway, but it's an enormous upset. Absolutely. For a show of this quality to get this many nominations and then no wins is a special slap in the face. Yeah. It points to some really toxic stuff that I think is hopefully only just now starting to get addressed in the wider theater community. Before we talk about our last two things, does anyone want to talk about any additional theories they have about why maybe this didn't work? And by work, I mean like run. Again, just like the subject matter. It's not your cheery, happy, like, you know, if you're if you're a tourist in New York, oh yeah, let me go see that that like minstrel show about those men that were wrong wrongfully imprisoned. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, you have Chicago, which is the same. But again, it's a revival that the original Chicago wasn't as well received. So, right. I don't know. No, you're totally onto something, Hal. I yeah. think the key, the key to that is that it's in the U.S. Yeah. Because then they took this same production, same team over to the U.K. It played a limited run at the U.K., but was developed at the Young Vic and then went to the West End and just crushed it. So I think it's the the subject matter combined with how uncomfortable it is to look this in the eye as an American. It was uncom- more uncomfortable enough as a Canadian, imagine as an American. And so maybe the level of separation that someone in the UK can get from that. Yeah. They were able to actually experience it. What the show does so well is that it's just like how much impact racism has in America. And yeah. it's, it's definitely uncomfortable and is trying to confront that. Whereas mm-hmm. Book of Mormon, kind of like, oh, like, look how ridiculous racism is by still being a white savior narrative. Right. Totally. It's a little bit more palatable. Beca- and again, because it's the creators of South Park, you can just laugh at it. So, so no, you can laugh at the racism in South Park, whereas the racism in Scottsboro Boys is they're really trying to make you confront with it. And it's just like, I'd rather go laugh. Right. I'd rather go laugh at the racists than have to consider whether I'm racist. Yeah. Do you think that a revival of this now would play differently from the way that it played last time? Yes. I'd like to hope so. Just yes. Especially with like, I've been following the, um, like the Instagram page, like the We We See You White American Theater that Mm -hmm. is really trying to push for change in the industry as a whole. Like, that's the kind of change. Yeah, remounting this show is a little bit of the kind of change that Broadway needs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that kind of answers our next question of should this be a musical? <laughs> the answer <laughs> is, is duh. The answer is absolutely, yes. yeah. Yes. 110%. Yeah. yeah. I would love to see a revival of this. I'd love to see a revival with, with a couple of BIPOC artists at the, um, at the head of the creative team. Carrying it forward to the other side. I can't wait. Yeah. I agree. This needs to be a musical. For Hal and for anyone who's joining us for the first time, you've been listening to, we have a very specific, very well thought out scientific set of um, evaluation processes. (laughs) <laughs> that we use to evaluate these shows. Tested in labs. Tested in labs. Tested not on um, animals. Double blind. Double blind. Definitely not on animals. We're not interested yeah. in that. But after double blind testing, we were able to come to a result 
for any show. And that result is, is this show a total flop? Is it a secret bop? Or do we need to make it stop? Total flop being this show just didn't work. Secret bop being the show's actually great. Make it stop being we should never talk about this show again in our lives. Yeah. So flop, bop, or make it stop. Hal, what do you think? I feel like this show sh- should not be a secret bop. It is just a bop. Yes, yeah! it's a full bop. Full on bop, like boppiest of bops. Absolutely. I'm with yeah. you. Bop, bop, total bop. Total bop, yeah. Really, the show that we haven't rated lower than an eight the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. It's a secret bop. <laughs> I feel like, because in the past I made the argument that like, oh, maybe that production was a flop, but the show itself is a total bop. I actually don't think that's the case with this one. I think entirely bop. Bop to the top. Absolutely. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> to Boo. quote, To quote another great songwriter. <laughs> <laughs> A contemporary of Kander and Eb, I would say. Oh my gosh. Whoa. Did we do it? Did we unpack the Scottsboro Boys? We talked about it. There it was. Yeah. There it went. Come back. Hal, thank you for thank you for coming. This was this was incredible. This was really fun, dude. Thank you for having me. It was yeah. so much fun. I haven't talked about theater this much oh, in yes. so long. <laughs> Feels good. Feels Feels so so good. good. Thank you for coming. It was so great to uh, get to know you and have you here. Thank you so much for having me. It was so great to meet you and so great to talk to you guys again. Ah, So good. Oh, cool. Join us next time. We loved doing three episodes of lesser known musicals in a row. Mm Mm-hmm. And y'all loved it so much by telling us so. And there are so many to do. So many. That we're going to do it again. Yeah. So join us next time when we're going to tackle three more super obscure, lesser known musicals that ran 100 performances or fewer on Broadway. We can't wait. See you then. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, (laughs) reach out. We love you. Goodbye. Paul wanted the last word, but I got the last word. Hi everyone, this is producer Daphne speaking. Thank you all so much for listening to Monkeys and Playbills, the show where we take a look at Broadway musicals that had 100 performances or fewer before closing. To learn more about the show, you can follow us on Instagram at monkeysandplaybillspod, on Twitter at monkeyplaybills, or email us at monkeysandplaybillspod at gmail.com. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash monkeysandplaybills. Monkeys and Playbills is proud to be a Village Conservatory for Music Theatre podcast. Original music for the show is provided by Paul Degers, and the show is produced and edited by Daphne Finlayson. Thank you all so much for listening, and join us next week where we take on Happy as Larry, a Broadway musical, and Censored Scenes from King Kong.